All right. We are releasing an interesting episode that was actually recorded last summer and fall, and it had to do with the reckonings that were going on in America with the presence of statues and monuments of uh, racist figures from American history, or at least in certain cases, controversial figures. And so we recorded this, what we thought would be a two-part episode, like a year ago. And the first part, which we released last fall, was about iconoclasm, uh, the destruction of images or idols or icons. And we wanted to look first historically. So we started, as you may have listened to, like ancient Egypt, the Hebrew Bible, Christianity, Islam. And then in the second part, we were going to look at the current events and debates. Of course, those debates continue to evolve since last summer. And as we were editing the episode, we started reflecting on how the discussion really it goes beyond statues, but also remains very much located within them. The particular discussion on the presence of structural racism. So that's this term that is all, all around us and it's used uh, quite frequently. And what we realized we wanted to parse out further was what is the structure in structural ra- racism? That word, that conceptual language, where did that come from? Because it comes from uh, a background in which uh, we were both trained to different extents, the language of systems and structures and a field of thought that was called structuralism. And so we were seeing how that conversation was really coming out of and returning back to the debates about statues. So we recorded like the second part, this is now September of last year, then a bunch of shit happened having to do with editing and files that you guys don't need to know about. But uh, one thing led to another, and we decided that we could piece this back together and that it would be, it would be interesting for folks. And uh, you know, in the meantime, of course, the statue debates, one to check in at the beginning right now, and the Charlottesville City Council in Virginia has voted to remove these monuments of Robert E. Lee in Stonewall Jackson. That's significant because it was originally a legal movement to remove those monuments that led to the Unite the Right, right-wing extremist, white supremacist rally in 2017 in Charlottesville. So that rally, that famous rally with the tiki torches, the Jews will not replace us, chants, and Trump saying that they're very good people after one of them drove over a civilian and killed her. That right-wing protest was actually in response to efforts to take the statues down that were in Charlottesville. So these efforts, it's important to remember, they didn't just start with um, the aftermath of the George Floyd killing. In fact, some of them go back, well, I mean, they go really far back, but uh, another touch point was in 2015 when a white supremacist killed, like massacred worshipers at a church in Charleston, South Carolina. There was the beginnings of, of movements to remove Confederate iconography, Confederate statues, Confederate Uh, flags and seals, like city seals, uh, from the public sphere. And of course, that movement picked up a lot of steam last summer in 2020. What's amazing now recording in 2021, looking back, uh, just doing a little bit of research, for instance, the Southern Poverty Law Center put out some numbers that last summer, 94 Confederate monuments were removed but 704 remain. 
And of the ones that were removed, some of them were put back, some of them are in storage pending different like litigation or, or uh, legal processes. And even our episode image, like on Instagram, was this picture of Christopher Columbus statue that had been decapitated. So it was like a decapitated Columbus body statue. And that statue, they've reattached the head, I think it's in Connecticut, following like a local referendum on it. And it's now intact again and, and actually patrolled for you know, to prevent further vandalism, as they call it. So uh, it's very interesting in that there was maybe this perception, certainly is, you know, fueled on the right that all of these statues are coming down and then, you know, all these other threats that were sort of fastened to that. But in fact, um, the vast majority of those statues remain. And one kind of final uh, data point that, we'll, that we talk about in the second part has to do with Trump. Um, you know, you'll hear in the, we're talking about him as like the president in the present tense throughout these recordings because they're from uh, July and September. But um, two days before he left office on Martin Luther King Day, a panel that he had appointed called the 1776 Project explicitly created to combat the 1619 project, uh, released a report. And Trump said that, uh, interestingly, he said the left-wing rioting and mayhem, by which he at other times was referring to a lot of these uh, removals of statues or these moments of iconoclasm, um, statue and icon destruction. So anyway, Trump, quote again, the left-wing rioting and mayhem are the direct result of decades of left-wing indoctrination in our schools. So this 1776 project was going to tell everyone how to, you know, re re-educate the American public to dispute ideas like that America's founding was tainted by slavery, and this so culture war. Even though Trump has gone time, quiet, like thankfully in when the last few months, the culture war over things like statues like and what they represent about American like history is very much still going. What is being so what you'll be hearing, um, in this again, moment, continued from last summer, to some extent, the it's like, well, use certain and destruction like, of, any of idols and statues all? and icons. We ended kind of with this history from the Renaissance, and Max was talking about neoclassical architecture, which Trump also tried to sort of bring back in some official way, and specifically equestrian monuments, monuments of men on horses that we see in many of our cities. So yeah, finally to wrap up this production intro, we wanted to share some feedback that we received about that original Iconoclasm episode because it's, it's interesting to us to keep in view that this isn't just about statues in America de- you know, depicting in three dimensions in sculpted forms of Confederate generals or American presidents or you know what have you, but the debates and the sort of, you know, ins and outs of icons and iconoclasm and you could just say three-dimensional representations of reality have you know these very deep religious and, and spiritual roots which again we explored that in in the episode last summer and um, i'm going to read this comment that was sent to us from a fan named max gibson no relation to max staley uh, so max wrote that he had started drawing and painting a few years ago quote i suddenly understood idol worship in a way i never had before I would spend hours on some little image on paper, you know, maybe our listeners can relate to this, 
And when I'd come back to it later, it would feel infused with some power beyond me. I knew it was only my hand and time that had created it, but there was a sparkle in it that seemed so far beyond my actual abilities. I loved the things I made as if they were individual creatures of the world and could understand at a minimum revering them as some tiny form of godhead. I would imagine that a skilled artisan working much longer on their work in a world less flooded with images than our own would feel that call immensely more. And then he goes on to talk about you know, imagery of God in the West. And so we're so inundated with this uh, depiction of God that you see in a lot of like comics of like an old man with a snowy white beard. And Max was saying that, um, Max Gibson was saying that it's really hard for him to talk about God without having that cartoon image come up. Uh, and he feels weird about the disparity between that image and you know, some of the deeper things. So I'm going to resume reading from his comments. I wonder what it would be like to grow up and live in a place that really abstained from creating images like that. If there would be more space in my brain for allowing those experiences of awe and terror and wondrous joy that cannot be named to take up whatever room they want without having words or images to contain them. So it's, it's an interesting thing to think about the different traditions and different approaches to, to building monuments, to building representations whether of God, gods, heroes, ancestors, and how our culture is approaching that and revising its approach to that in real time right now. And, you know, just maybe keep in mind those longer, you know, older discussions about some of this is an interesting counterpoint. So again, what you're about to hear now, recorded last July, 2020, and the second part a little bit after that in 2020. So now it's time to transition into modern iconoclasm and how it kind of became a secular concern. At least that's what we're kind of trying to argue here. Um, so there was an important period like in the French Revolution where statues were being toppled and stuff. We don't really, I don't really have much to say about that. Um, and, they tried to uh, destroy Notre he, Dame. I don't know if you would, if that's quite... Iconic really? Time. Okay. Yeah. So there was like there was like a heavy. Or I think they successfully destroyed a lot of it, actually. Yeah, there was a heavy. Okay, so we can say like there was a heavy anti-clerical kind of aspect to the French Revolution, um, and like to French republicanism from then until today, basically. But um, and so there was this hostility to the Catholic Church, like as this instrument of you know the unequal political system and like benighting of the people like keeping them down with superstition and all this kind of stuff a lot of kind of stuff that you would like recognize as you know dipshit atheist kind of <laughs> kind of uh ideas about what religion is uh so there was iconoclasm happening in the french revolution so so it starts to take on this like modern political sense um but here's where we can kind of get into uh the like modern meaning modern modern like late modern intellectual history that is informing this current iconoclastic moment and i think that ethan me has a lot of great stuff to say so i want to hear what you have to say about that you know basically just in the modern period so you you spoke about the renaissance and in baroque as like one thing that they achieved also just because they technically from a technical standpoint got better at making paintings and sculptures that were 
photorealistic, we would now say. They got better verisimilitude, like, you know, this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Should have mentioned that. Yes. Like perspective and, and stuff like that. You know, making yeah. images that look really lifelike. You know, there's one way of looking at, at Western art as, as like a journey toward that. And that's the end point. That's like the goal has been reached. Uh, and a, a, a Greek term that's invoked in this kind of discussion would be mimesis, which is just the representation of reality. Um, anything that re- represents reality is mimetic and um, could be literature is also mimetic and everything, you know, theater or whatever. But in, in this case, uh, you know, when you have a painting by like R- Raphael that looks like you could just like step right out of the painting into the room, like, you know, kind of has you know, has what has been achieved there. And some people even, not just because he was working in the Vatican for the Catholic Church, but viewed Raphael and Michelangelo, this was like a godly or like divine power to be able to, um, you know, create images uh, in the image, you know, so, so to speak. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What's Who's the guy who wrote the li- Vasari, who wrote The Lives of the Artists? Like, if you read yeah. it, every single introduction is like, he was inspired by God. Like he was an instrument of God to to create these images. Yeah, yeah. It says that was like a, a Renaissance biographer of, of, of these guys. Um, so so there's like a few just like bumps on the road from the like I think like maybe if I were just starting from scratch, I would say that Western culture is uh, and particularly in the contemporary moment and in particularly American culture is very visual heavy on the visual. And so what Martin Jay, that uh, historian that was Max's advisor, calls it, he calls it ocular-centric, ocular-centrism. Actually, his book is about anti-ocular-centrism. Um, mm-hmm. But ocular-centrism, right, I think we could all agree that that's the prevailing tendency, maybe. But there's some, there's some bumps to that. One is the invention of photography, which is now like, oh, now we really have, this isn't just a perfect representation. This, like, you know, this is, uh, you know, a chemically rendered image of a real thing. Um, and, and, like, what does that do to the status of, um, you know, uh, older forms of... Mimetic visual arts, yeah. Mimetic visual sure. arts and idols and, and so on. Um, and then, in, in, in I guess maybe part of the, also the disenchantment. So, you know, photography isn't, unlike... Um, Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel, this is not taking place under like religious auspices, right? So um, there's, a, there's a disenchantment and a secularization of vision. Even maybe vision remains the primary sense, but it's taken out of a spiritual context. And I think some of the anxieties about that are reflected or about the power of vision or how it should work are reflected in like the Impressionists and the Cubists. Like a lot of modern art movements are sort of poking at um, the no longer sacred truth of, of verisimilitude or, or perfect visual representation. So as far as the philosophers go, so basically a lot of 20th century philosophy is pushing back against this, this maybe mass cultural emphasis on the visual. So on the one hand, you have photography and then you have cinema. You have things going on in mass culture that are increasing the uh, importance, the visibility of visual representation and of images. Um, But you also have like a tendency among maybe critics of mass culture to, to see the dangers in some of this. 
So one example would be the Frankfurt School, like German Jewish philosophers living in Europe during the rise of fascism, you know, looking at the monumental architecture that's you know, these um, Nazi and, and Italian fascist uh, works of architecture that were supposed to evoke ancient Greece and Rome, and looking at the films of Leni Riefenstahl and being like, this is not good. <laughs> uh, there's problems here. Um, Mm. And and not just because the the Nazis and the fascists have like bad political ideas, but there it almost kind of goes back to that original Judaic um, suspicion of the visual as a means of sort of seducing the mind in a certain way, um, or o- overrunning maybe more like reflective capacities that you know some might argue exist in better exist in language or in text or something. Um, that vi- that visual objects seem to lend themselves to one meaning in a way that texts don't. I'm not saying that's true, but that's just, you know, what they might have been putting out there a little bit is, you know, many people can read a poem um, or a Shakespeare sonnet or, you know, a novel in different ways, but they're... Uh, an image seems to like speak for itself, right? Like that just, that's that, you know, that's a picture of the Eiffel Tower. That's a picture of like Nazis goose stepping, like whatever. So Mm. that, that's like uh, maybe like the kind of Marxist Frankfurt school side. Then there's this other thing that I've brought up, which I'll I'll kind of actually maybe get into more when we start discussing the present thing, but this idea of, of structure and structuralism names of people it starts with a, a swiss um linguist named uh, <laughs> and then a lot of his yeah. stuff is picked up by uh, jacques derrida in kind of applying it to literature and philosophy by uh, jacques lacan apply, applying it to psychoanalysis and all these kind of uh you know post-war thinkers are seeing that so, so what Sassur is saying is that meaning in language exists um, due to a, a structure. It's not, there's no transcendent truth in language, like cat and bat. A cat is one type of animal, a bat is another type of animal. All you do is you replace a phoneme, a sound at the beginning, but that distinction, that difference creates a difference in meaning. And, you know, basically... The reason we know what words mean is because if you go around calling things by the wrong words, you'll get corrected. And, you know, no, that's, you know, a baby, if a baby every time it pointed to a cat, it said dog, it, everyone would say no. And that no, that, um, you know, enforcing of that line of difference, that's the rule of the s- structure. And that's what creates meaning. That's a really, really like lame gloss on how that works. But what some folks start to realize is that these structures don't just exist in language. This is maybe how the rules of culture work. This is maybe how the rules of law and legal systems work. That um, there are structures that go beyond any one rule or any one practice, and they kind of contain you know, all the multitude of, of rules and customs and practices and options within them, you know? And so that structure or that system, um, you know, it could be a cultural system, um, an, you know, an anthropological system, um, but that becomes a way of, that sets up enough 
for us to start talking about the present and I'll kind of bring that back in as we get to it. So in terms of Jay talking about yeah, the the ocular centricity of of western culture. I think it's true, but but like like I've been saying, like there has been a counter tendency of of iconoclasm. Yeah, and also anti-ocular centrism, right? So like Yeah, yeah. Well, then that's what the book is 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 ultimately about is that at least right. in in like critical theory and like French thought, which was massively influential, the tendency is anti-ocular centric. Yeah, and it's interesting because so I don't want to talk too much about grad school, but I did take a grad school seminar, you know, led by a professor named Victoria Kahn. It was about iconoclasm and ideology critique, and her whole point was about the mimetic tradition in, in Western culture and an anti-mimetic tradition. And so it, I feel like that kind of maps on to, to the J kind of idea about vision. But yeah, anyways, if you want to transition into the, the modern period, that'd be great. The, the, the current day. Last sorry. month period. Yes. <laughs> like, so the protesters... And again, you know, it's important to emphasize not all the protesters, right? It, there's a lot of different ideas within the movement. And even just if anyone's like been to any protest, like not even just now, but at any time, especially ones that reach kind of like, you know, fever pitches of energy, um, like what ends up happening isn't always necessarily like the rational intent of everyone who is there, let alone even participates in it. Um, you know, things like take on a life of their own. I mean, like if you've been to a sports game, like you've also experienced that, right? Yeah. But um, so in, in nothing that in what I'm saying, am I trying to say that like there are quote unquote the protesters and they're all on the same page and this is exactly their intent. What I'm going to be more interested and more focused on is like public statements by, you know, often in the form of like op-eds and articles online and, and, um, and also social media posts, both uh, on the one hand, by like advocates of taking down certain statues, and you know, there's a, a range there we'll discuss. But just folks who write stuff in the public sphere that says like this statue was taken down or should be taken down, I'm in favor of that. And yeah. then I'm also interested in like the discourses of like you know the mayor or the director of the museum who's like you know we've deliberated and we've come to the conclusion that we need to take this thing down. Yeah. Um, which is a slightly different formation. And so I'm going to sort of propose, th these are not meant to be uh, exhaustive definitions, okay? These are hopefully not too reductive, but some of the ideologies that I have encountered in, in my reading and pre preparing for this for like, why to take down statues. And which statues is important, but I'm going to bracket which ones for now, okay? Yeah. Um, one is, is there's the idea that statues can transmit, and I think that that's an important word, um, a power structure or an ideology. So f with that means, so, you know, um, if let's, uh, let's come up with like a, a pretty um, e like clear example, a statue of Robert E. Lee, who is the, you know, like supreme military commander of the Confederacy, um, the Confederacy stood for white supremacy and slavery. Um, that was not just like an opinion. It was like the entire structure of their society and their political project. And uh, a statue of Robert E. Lee in, in this view would transmit that ideology or sort of like broadcast it. Okay. 
Um, another critique would be that it would elevate that idea or the beliefs and practices of the person who is depicted or the society that they re- represent. So there's a, there is that mimetic thing here, like something standing in for something else, like a work, a work of the plastic arts representing or making present um, a society, a political entity or an ideology, you know? Yeah. And like the last thing I'll, I have some examples that I want to discuss, but I want to give you a chance before I, I, I get too specific. So just the last thing I'll say is that a lot of this, if you're hearing what I'm saying, relies on the idea that there is something that we can call a power structure. Um, you know, what I was saying earlier, like also a system, but like, let's say a power structure. And so, you know, if, if, Someone said the term white supremacy in the 1990s. What that meant back then was, you know, scary ass skinheads in like Idaho Mm. or like Oklahoma living in the boonies who wanted to have like a, a Nazi state and like kill all like people of color and Jews and stuff. That's what everyone kind of like denoted with the term white supremacy. Whereas now when we say white supremacy, we're talking about a power structure that um, informs like all kinds of, you know, maybe all social relationships, all political relationships, kind of like all of like our social reality um, would be structured around white supremacy. So it's, it's not just an ideology, it's a structure uh, that, you know, organizes things, beliefs and practices. The idea, here's where I'm, the, the, my bottom line, the idea that there are these things called structures that unite ideas and practices in a very um, comprehensive way, that comes from post-structuralism. And it has a relationship to a concept called discourse. So I just want to like throw that out there and ultimately analyze whether the advocates of taking down statues now, whether their ideas of structure and discourse, like how they are derive from, but also maybe are distinct from, I'm going to rely in particular on a philosopher named Michel Foucault, who sort of was one of like the big bang philosophers of, of these terms. Mm. Um, so like, so yeah, so I've talked about ideologies, I've talked about power structures and influence. And what are some of, Max, do you think some of the other things that people think, you know, if you have your hypothetical statue of like a Confederate person and folks who say, let's take that statue down. What are some of their other reasons, I guess, for lack of a better term? Yeah, I mean, that's what's so hard. Like, I, it, it's hard for me to, like, know or decide what what people are thinking. I mean, so, like, so what I just think is really important is to kind of distinguish between what the meaning of the statues are and, like, what do the statues do uh, in terms of, like, upholding or undergirding or somehow supporting these um, unequal power structures? And then what is the meaning of tearing them down? Because I don't necessarily think that like that's exactly the, the same thing. I think that there's people are kind of seeing it as too much of like a, a one-dimensional thing. The statues are doing something and you take them down in order to stop them from doing that anymore. Instead of like looking at specifically what does it mean, the public gesture of tearing them down. 
Um, and obviously, like, there's a lot of overlap there. But the thing that, like, has been bothering me about, like, the discourse around statue toppling, it's not the people who are, like, forcefully arguing for taking down these statues. And it's not necessarily the people arguing for defending the statues, although I don't agree with them. I mean, especially in the case of, like, Confederate statues, like, we haven't even mentioned that, but, like, both of us think, like, yeah, get rid of the Confederate statues. But, like, we should probably unpack exactly why we think they should be gotten rid of. I mean, yeah, it's kind of obvious, the like, they're bad. Like, the, those are bad but guys. Well, there's a lot of different... Well, there's a lot of different ways of articulating how they're bad and, it, like, how does that work? Like, what is the bad thing that happens? Right, right, so, right. But to, if I can just finish my point really quickly yeah. before we get back no, to no, that. No, no, go ahead. It's yeah. the people who are, like, glib about it and are just like, who cares? Like, you know, just, like, get rid of the statues. Like, we don't need statues. Like, who Like, no one... No one like no one gives a shit about those statues. Like it just doesn't matter. It's like, well, the people who tore them down think they matter, and also they tore them down in order to get attention, and like because they think that that gesture is important in some way. So like, let's take it seriously, and let's be serious and honest about what we think about like what do we understand as like what what images should be in the public sphere? What kind of values do we think should be? transmitted in the public sphere and say it say what you think because i've i've been really annoyed by people who are like oh yeah whatever like who cares about a statue um because it's just symbolic or whatever it's like well the people who tore it down didn't didn't think they were just symbolic and and then we're trying to set up this whole framework of like trying to understand how different people understand them um to be more than just symbols or or Uh, what is what does it mean to be symbolic yeah, what does it mean to be? What, yeah, what does it mean to be symbolic? I mean, so people say it's symbolic in order to 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 dismiss it as a, as a like people are saying, oh, it's just symbolic as a way of dismissing critics of the iconoclast to say like, well, you shouldn't be defending these statues because like it doesn't matter, or also like dismissing their concerns, making them seem childish, kind of like babies. Oh, you're just crying over your your shattered statue, and I don't really like. I'm not really into that whole. Tendency. Can I jump in and I want to give like a few concrete things where people do say what they think. Yeah. Okay. It, it just to, I mean, like, I, I, I totally hear the thing that you're saying, and I agree with you in, entirely. And I think that like another thing that, that you're indicating is there is this kind of inertia, like a sort of like, you know, like water um, going down the hill. I forgot, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, the current momentum, yeah. uh, momentum to taking them down. And, um, and I think that like, th- even though, like, I mean, as far as I'm, con- look, I'm a jute. Like, I don't say take them all down in a flippant way. I say take them all down because it's idolatry. And mm-hmm. I like, I know it's like, I'm jo- like, that sounds, maybe that sounds like glib. I'm trying to make you laugh. But um, I'm obviously like 100% down with destroying certainly every Confederate statue and, and probably beyond that too. But like, but, but what's, I am, even though I feel that way, I'm like a little annoyed when, you know, uh, like spokesperson for public institution is just like, yeah, of course, let's do it in a kind of like knee jerk way that, that like you say, it doesn't really articulate a values. It's like, why um, didn't you do it before? I mean, why didn't you do it before? Exactly. Yeah. Which, you know, which, which, by the way, can be asked about so many of the things that like kind of corporate America is doing. Like, you know, we got a real problem with representation or with like, um, you know, like people being fired for 
so th- th- this was an, it, sorry, this is a little tangent and then I'll get to the very concrete. Uh, Ginny Belafonte, I'm a big fan of her. She's like the Metro columnist for the times. Mm. Um, like it's always on like the, the like last page of the A section on, on Sundays. And so she was writing about like some dude who got fired cause like, I don't know if it was like he was in blackface or like he said something and he did like a, like a bad racist thing in the past and, and someone unearthed it and like this dude get, got fired and he was like in finance and she was like, what's fucked up is like the people who quote unquote took the righteous stand and fired him, like knew that he did that way back then yeah. and were okay with it. And like, he wasn't like tone deaf. He was t- tuned in exactly to what was okay then. And so him getting fi- like whether he should be fired or not, it's a different question, but like a lot of people are, are, are trying to quote unquote like jump onto the right side of history without really taking a stand on, on what that is. So if you, Max, will you indulge me? Yeah. And I'm going to uh, read two versions of like why to take them down. Sounds good. One, one is Charles Blow, and this is in a column for the Times where he's saying to also take down George Washington. And we're going to get to the where, where do you draw the line thing. But he was saying slave owners should not be honored with monuments in public spaces. So to him, it's an honor thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Anna Lucia Araujo in the Washington Post wrote, recognizing that cultural representations matter, protesters have targeted these monuments because they are tools that allow the past of racial oppression to remain alive now across the globe. So the monuments are tools of racial oppression. Like they're like actively, that's different than honor. That's like they're actively perpetuating or like um, enacting oppression. And, and then the last uh, one was in Time magazine by a British sculpt, sculptor who um, his, uh, his father was Jamaican. His mother was uh, a white lady from Britain. Um, and his name is Thomas J. Moore. Mm. And he was saying, and he, he is a sculptor. Um, and I, I recommend this comment. It's really interesting. Actually, more than that, I recommend his work is really dope. But around the world, he said, statues have been used to exemplify what power looks like and to maintain systems of power. Um, do we further ingrain the current system of choosing historical figures to represent the values we should aspire to? So that's actually, he's making two points that actually I think are in opposition. One is that like, Powerful people have statues made of them. So if you have a statue, that's society saying this is who has power. But this is kind of an is slash ought question. You know, just because mm. that is who had power, does that mean that it is representing the values we should aspire to? Right? Like, um, I, I and, and so all I would say is that we should, there's some room for discussion there about, is saying, like, George Washington, that dude was a powerful dude, first president, two terms. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it, you know, it, it, does the statue honor him? Does it tell us to live the way that he lived and live according to his values? Um, you know... Uh, yeah, I mean, so, so what I would say is, like, what you an argument you could make is that, like, the problem with these... with public monuments um, to great figures of the past is that like they kind of tend to obliterate the is ought distinction. Like they Mm. say like these men are powerful and important and therefore they're exemplary in some ways. Um, But 
you know, there's another argument made by some guy. I, I have no idea. I can't remember at all who it was, but it was like making a distinction between Confederate monuments, which is saying that like these these figures are remembered and honored because of their racism, whereas other figures like Washington, Jefferson, are honored in spite of their racism. That's like a way more articulate version of what what Biden said. Like Biden, you know, fumbled his way through <laughs> saying, like, tr- he was just like, cub dub 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 you know. Oh, man. But like, what? Yeah. that's what he meant. Yeah. Oh, or- he said, okay, here it is, sorry. Um, uh, this, the Confederates, someone who was in rebellion committing treason, trying to take down a union to keep slavery, uh, you know, they were like, their project was to keep slavery, whereas the, like he's saying, Jefferson, Washington is a remembrance. It's not dealing with revering somebody who had that view. Yeah. Like remembering versus revering. You know, with Jefferson, do we look at, well, he tried to pass all this legislation to ban slavery, but not only had hundreds of slaves but in fact sold them to pay off his debts you know and in his and will. raped them yeah yeah that one i think is a matter of dispute whether there was rape or consent <laughs> right, is, sure. is that a settled question i don't i mean i'm not like i'm what? i'm aware of the historical i'm aware of the historical debate what the iconoclast would say is there's no consent in slavery so that he was a rapist and 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 i think that that's a fairly widespread oh that's interesting of- but I, can, can, I, can i actually tell you something interesting about sally hemmings that i read in preparing for this go for go for it this is like super fucked up so first of all he was 47 she was 16 um he was in france and she came to france as basically sort of like the attendant of his nine-year-old daughter mm. okay gross and okay. um yeah. you know it's like would go to like dress her and go to parties with her and all this Fr- the revolution happens slavery is outlawed jefferson paid her and her brother, who was his cook, a, a wage in France. And then when he was like sent back home, they, they were like, they had the option to stay in France and, you know, quote unquote, be free. But of course, then they would have been separated from their entire family who all were his slaves in Monticello, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and they went back with him. But it's like, I mean, that to me is so crazy, this concept of, oh, okay, in this country, it's, it's illegal, so I'll pay them. But as soon as we're back in America, like, even though I'm saying that I think slavery is bad and we can get into, like, his views on that. That's good. He you like that, yeah. Oh, he said that. Yeah, no, yeah. no, no, Jefferson, Jefferson, <laughs> yeah. Jefferson. Yeah. Um, like, just the way that he, like, snaps right back into the, you know, I mean, although he, the only people he freed were his children through her basically Ugh. yeah i mean and the, the, that's like the the ones where if we could get in like where to draw the line but like this is some pretty brutal stuff i think it's you can make a pretty compelling case that these are like mortal sins rather than venial sins that you can like set aside um and say well he had he had you know exemplary qualities as well well but then but, it, it comes to are these um, memorializing or what was the honoring, you know, or whatever that distinction is? Yeah, I don't know about that, man. I mean, I think that like there, there is like, it, it's kind of doing lots of different things at once. And what I think about like when, when I think about like the symbolic versus material concerns, like, and, and how does, how do these monuments come to have like a material significance in, in society. I mean, building these monuments 
creating likenesses of exemplary men, like that was understood both as a way of like honoring, honoring people, but also like as a tool, as like a propaganda tool. So like, I think they, they got that it was doing like more than one thing at once. And so, so when you look at like what these, it's not just like simply as these aren't just like simply statues, like these statues exist in, in important places, right? Like often yeah, like they, the Jefferson monument, which is like you drive around DC and like, Right, they're they're often like everyone. People kind of say like, "Oh, it doesn't matter." It's like just some thing in a traffic circle you just drive by. But it's like, well, that's what makes it important. It's like it's in like a zone where people are moving through, and like so. Then you think like a a protest, any kind of protest, right? Even one that's focusing on material concerns like police abolition, for example, rather than symbolic concerns like toppling statues where do they go? They don't just go down random streets. They go to like meaningful locations. So like the idea of statues, particularly take like Confederate statues. It's really funny. But on on that point, it's funny that everyone's like, take them out of the public and put them in a museum where no one will see them. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, museum is a what greater dishonor. Right. But like, that's the whole idea is like, what, what is a museum supposed to do with images? It's supposed to contextualize them. Right. Yeah. But whereas if you have them in places of like regular, you know, normal human intercourse, then it it is providing the context for everything else. Right. And so like that's what I think is important. Like if you if you think of like southern places also outside of the south, wherever they have Confederate memorials um, or monuments like it it is the thing that's giving context to like the whole society around it. And I do think that like there is some way that like having a Confederate monument like does transmit the idea. It's uh, saying that the, these are, these are figures that the public is in, like kind of forced to remember. At, at a minimum, right? And if you're forced to remember someone whose like life project was to perpetuate slavery, right? Yeah, you know. And you I do think that, like, and and what I would say also is that, like, in terms of what the iconoclasts are saying, not not like the pundit commentators because they're being bullshit, glib, whatever. But like, what the iconoclasts are saying is much more serious and honest about, uh, for me at least about like the way that structural quote unquote racism works than like the way it's talked about in a lot of other ways, because they're not saying like, Oh, like they're not like relying on this, the, the psychological and legalist. What I mean is like the harm trauma stuff. That's which is, like, huge. I did a lot of reading that is huge. in the, in the discourse for why to take them down. Okay. I have to say, I like, like, like it or not, you know, I'm just if saying you say, it's a if big you say that, But I mean, like, I, I accept all that. Like, if people are saying that they're being harmed, I mean, like, it's, it's still kind of vague to me in some ways. But, like, I think that the people who are bringing the statues down, like, are, are taking the statues seriously and, like, thinking seriously about, like, what it means. And to me, what it means is it is a yeah it's a visual expression but also like it 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 is like this thing of like the the location and the space like it 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 gives a context to what's everything that's happening around it 
Um, and they're saying like, fuck that. We like want to get rid of these. We want to get rid of these ideas. We want to get rid of these values and um, like effacing them, destroying them in a very dis disrespectful way is like a way of trying to bring about a break from those values. Instead of being like, oh, this is like, this makes me sad, so I want to get rid of it, which is like the way, you know, maybe people use the trauma harm language. And, and, and like I said, that's fine. Um, but that's a way people like on the other side can kind of use to uh, caricature the, uh, the, the iconoclasts and say, oh, they're all about safe spaces. But like well, from what I've read, it's more like, you know, these... these What's well, ideology critique, kind of? Yeah, it's it's ideology critique. Like, let's get rid of this and like build a better, um, build something a, a better. A society in its place. that's like I don't know. Mo modeled on, like, yeah, just trying to like fit, like a society that's modeled on on better values than than theirs. I, I want to, like, like before we get too far from it, just go back to this thing of, um, you know, well, it's basically what you're saying is like, okay, so what what do the protesters say is happening when this statue is up there? Is it, you know, it, it's, it's providing context, it's um, broadcasting values, maybe like harm. Um, so the one thing that I wanted like to, to point out is that the whole nature of a structure of power, like going back to Foucault, um, or, or, you know, in a discourse is that, and this is the difference between post-structuralism and structuralism, and that may sound like a really academic, like, yawn distinction, but it's a really important one, which is that, like, texts, and in, the, in, in, in texts aren't just, like, pieces of paper with words on them, but really, like, everything in the world, you know, are not, like, coherent entities with, like, singular meaning, you know? That there's a multi multitude in, in all signifiers, you know, mm -hmm. there's, like, a multitude of possibilities, and um, so I want to read you something like that Foucault wrote um, when he was talking about um, discourse and power and like how all that works. Because it's not just that like they're saying, Foucault is saying our society has these structures of power. You can call it whatever you want. So let's say in our case, we're going to identify that it's white supremacy. And then like you just go around picking things and saying that is no more and no less than, than this ideology. Mm. Um, than, than white supremacy. And so I think that that, like, it, it's pretty easy, I think, in, in our conversation and with our listeners to, like, we can, like, put all the Confederate statues in the trash now and, like, move on to the, okay, but what about George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or Abraham Lincoln even, you know? Mm. And what Foucault's point uh, was is that, like, discourse is, it's not like there's someone on top who's telling everyone what to do. That's precisely what it is not. That's, like, a pre-modern form of power. Um, discourse is something that's like we're all participating in it all the time you know we're all constituting our reality through it so when there is maybe like a revolution okay part of what that is is replacing one discourse with another so he says there is power this quote there is power there is resistance and yet this resistance is never in a position of exteriority in relation to power there is no single locus of great refusal, capitalized refusal, no soul of revolt, source of all rebellions, or pure law of the revolutionary. Instead, there is a plurality of resistances, each of them a special case. And um, basically, like, when those, 
points of resistance, each of them a special case, kind of come together, they end up um, codifying the new discourse. So I say that both as like a little bit of a critique, which is to say we're oversimplifying things if we point to a statue and just say that statue has one meaning, it can only have one meaning, it, it, it you know, it, there's a literal meaning, there's no subtext, you know, if we, um, that's like, I think the misleading aspect of the visual, you were talking about it earlier, they sort of lend themselves to that. Yeah. But on, the, you know, they're polyvalent, but on the other hand, like, we can contest those meanings and create like new structures of power will never be outside of power, at least in that in his paradigm. There's no outside of the structure, but there is like a way of kind of restructuring the structure. And perhaps this is part of that. Okay, so there's some people who would say like, okay, go through each individual person and say like, <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, he said something, he had racist opinions at some point. So get rid of him. You know, and there's this kind of that's easy to poke holes in. And I think I think most people would agree, like, let's not, you know, exercise Abraham Lincoln from the national memory and like from the, the a place of honor in our kind of Instagram would say that we should do it. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, that depends. But I mean, like it's this it's this moment of enthusiasm. I think it'll pass. I think that I think Lincoln will be fine in the end. <laughs> I think Grant will be, too. But like, to me, what's so interesting is that these moments, these debates, even like toppling a statue of Grant, it's not necessarily just about uh, overthrowing the past or overthrowing a kind of present, which is like reliant on a certain narrative of the past. Right. Mm. And so the idea is that like that toppling those statues overthrows that that narrative and like creates new possibilities for the future but it's not like like, those guys still existed in the past we're just going to narrate their history in a different way yeah yeah but or the total history yeah exactly but like the thing is it's not it's not an erasure so like that's the whole thing is like you're getting rid of statues but you're not getting rid of the history and like that's the whole thing like that bothered me so much is as a historian um, as everyone says, like people are like, oh, well, you don't learn history from statues, but it's like, yes, but you learn history from talking about these statues. And we all agree that history is important. So like, let's be serious about what, what we think. And these episodes, these actions of tearing down statues are reviving history in a lot of ways. And like what I noticed is that while people, the iconoclasts might have an idea, uh, certain ideas about history and certain ideas about the images that like you can poke holes in, they do take very seriously like how history, so all these statue defender, like, yeah, the statue defender discourse of like, oh, we don't, we don't want to erase our history. We don't want to erase our past rings totally false to me because like these people are excavating it. And like, it's not an erasing of history. It's like, it's an excavation of that. So, so that's just what I wanted to say. And like, and that's why I think really that if you, if you're in favor of it, you should take it serious and and think about what, what kinds of values, because like the fact of the matter is, is that like, there's going to be, there are going to be symbolically important locations or spaces in our cities. Right. Mm. And what do you want to have there? If you don't want to have these people. Right. And I do think that like 
you can just say, and this is something that I see a lot, and it's like an iconoclastic idea is like we shouldn't have individuals, right? We well, other do... people say we should have Harriet Tubman and we should right, have right. different individuals who represent um, like, you know, a, a more diverse or someone even say a more accurate and complete history of our country that includes um, people who made huge contributions, but whose roles have been marginalized. Right. Yeah. So, so that's the whole thing is like, but then at the same time, and, and this is something that I think you pointed out, it's like you can't just have totally marginalized people because then you're you're only telling half of the story right but i guess that cuts it cuts against what i was just saying well earlier it's but. Co- yeah okay if you follow the the logic of like getting rid of white supremacy to its logical conclusion you would not only i think have to get rid of um jefferson and washington because they were slave owners like you'd have to get rid of like everyone up to like, I don't know, Bill Clinton or something like LBJ would be gone, you know, like all the racist shit that he said and like voting against like an anti-lynching measure in the seven in the forties rather, uh, even though he passed civil rights in the sixties, you know, it's sort of, it is also a sort of a, like one sin gets you to hell and like, it doesn't matter. You know, it's like a, it's almost like how, like if, if you accept Christ, you immediately go to heaven, everything else, whatever. I know that's not how it works, but you know, like work with me here. This yeah. is like one one sin is like uh, in, instant damnation. And yeah, I, and that can and, be and that I, can be turned around because like I know that like conservative people are just kind of like yeah, well Martin Luther King he was great, but you know oh he cheated on he his committed wife. adultery yeah or like or whatever yeah no it it it, it it's a, it's a weapon that we should think about before that's the one that we use. So like I, I was telling this to one friend of mine, um, and he was like oh well this just reinforces the importance of arbitrary limits <laughs> and i'm like well that's it's hard to put that on a poster you yeah. know but i think there might be something to that but like what i was thinking is that what it does make you reflect upon is that um the nature of power is is such that the people who who shape historical events and in lead institutions like governments or whatever and this isn't just in america this is like everywhere at all times, those people are going to tend to be people who do really bad shit. This is just, this is like human history in its totality. Like, tell me someone who had power, who didn't like violate our morality, like who didn't violate um, maybe like a radical egalitarianism, if, if that's what we're going for now. Um, and I was thinking about like, like forget. Well, yeah, but that's the whole question is like, can you have statues of individuals that, that aren't going to inevitably kind of like run against an idea of egalitarianism, right? Well, but so what about like the, the obelisk, a friend of mine was talking about the obelisks in Paris. And I, and I was like, well, the first thing about that is it should be returned to Egypt. Yeah. But, but like, yeah, nonetheless, like that's to, I was looking at Yeah, but that's the whole had... thing. People say that. Yeah, people say that. They're like, oh, well, we should have abstract kind of like ideas represented in sculpture. Let's well, like the ignore obelisk that. abstract. Yeah, right. There's hieroglyphics saying this is for this guy. For sure, but like he's to, God, it, 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 you know. It, taken out of context, it became an abstract sim- like symbol. But like, yeah, mm. but like triumphal arches and stuff. Like, so they they're figurative art, right? But like they they're not like of one person, right? So like, but there's all sorts of monuments that like are abstracted, not about individuals that like also have problematic. Um, like like Mayan pyramids where there was human sacrifice on top of them or or the Colosseum where there was like yeah, hundreds sure. of thousands of people, slaves, in fact, who were killed at the, the sports in the Colosseum. But you go to Rome and you visit the Colosseum and I don't think you're necessarily saying, 
oh, you know, like what would be dope is if we could like kill all a bunch of people here. No, it's right about now. the like engineering uh, achievement. It's about it. the engineering, but it's also about like human history is 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 very violent. You know, it 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 doesn't have morals and like coming into contact with that history doesn't necessarily endorse the beliefs of, you know, you can visit the Mayan pyramid without indo- like being like, Yeah, oh, but okay. I, but I, like, I don't think that we should like combine this kind of preservationist, like archeological interest of like the human heritage with, with something that's like, well, what, yeah, monumental, sure. right. So, so, but that, but, but that's like, where does, where's thing. the line? Right. What year? Exactly. Where's the line? So, yeah. you, so you go to, so, so you go to Berlin, right. And like, um, there's a Brandenburger gate, right? And then there's like the victory monument, like a little bit down the way and like all that kind of stuff. It's like, that's all abstract, right? And it's like the from the from the earlier period of like Prussian history. Um, and it's like, is that, so like these are things that are, it's like the axis, axis, n- not using that in any like historical. L- lower case it's like, yeah, the geometric axis of the city. Like these are, important locations in the city um so not not trying to talk about like should we blame earlier prussian history or german history for like what happened later in the nazi period but like are those public monuments that are like subject to this kind of debate or are those archaeological Hmm. like heritage items you know what i mean and then Hmm. by the way like a few blocks away from the brandenburger gate is the monument to the murdered Jews of murdered Europe. Murdered Jews of Europe. Right? I do, in any case, I do think that, like, Germany is an interesting thing to, interesting case to look at because they went through a period after... Uh, they did the worst shit. They did the worst <laughs> stuff, right? So, like, you know, to be honest, the transatlantic slave trade is some of the worst shit ever, too, right? So, like, yeah. we did that. And yeah. Germany did something else, right? So, so, and, and they had to deal with a country that was... And this was what was different for them is like the country was half, half of it was flattened, right? But like what was left was like a ton of it was marked by the Nazi heritage, right? So like they didn't keep much, they didn't keep like explicitly Nazi stuff, but like there was lots of buildings that had associations with the Nazi regime. Like for example, the, like the, the building, the university building in Frankfurt where I, I worked on my dissertation for a long time was the IG Farben headquarters in the thirties. Mm. And that's where they developed the, I mean, I don't think they developed the, the, the poison gas that was used in the camps there, but it was like the bureaucratic headquarters of the company. It was later donated to NATO. It was like the headquarters of NATO for, uh, for, for a while and then given to the, the university. And they kind of had to decide like, well, should we tear it down? And like at that point, it was like the 80s or 90s or something. And they're like, and the question is like, would you have to get rid of absolutely everything, right? That that had anything to do with like, do you like, what are we going to accomplish by erasing it, right? Uh-huh. So instead, they put up, they put up plaques and like educated people basically. This is this is what this building was. It's not what it is anymore, right? It's not that it's not it's not the headquarters of a of a Nazi collaborationist, you know, chemicals company. It's a, it's a institution of higher learning. Um, so we're not going to just tear it down. It wasn't like it, aesthetically it, it isn't Nazi architecture. Um, and so like at some point you have this and, and so like 
rather than like just completely trying to like erase all traces of what had happened, instead they built monuments um, to like remembering the bad things that that they had done, right? And they built these you know stumbling stones all over the country. Like you walk on the yeah. street and you see these plaques on the street saying the names of people who had been deported, not just Jews, all sorts of different people um, uh, who had been deported or uh, and killed in the camps. And it, and it tells you there, you know, just like a short biography. And it's meant to like imbue the whole, the whole society with a memory of what had happened. And like, to me, that seems in, in some senses, like, an example that we can look at being like where where you can see like there is a, there is a place where you have to stop just erasing or not erasing destroying whatever you however you want to call it like and, physical traces of like you know abhorrent regimes yeah and 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 there's a and and there's also a place where you have to start like memorializing like if there's evil in the history in in history it's not about like you can't erase the evil either mm. right so why not memorialize that too because like that's something that's that's just as 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 equally a part of our um like the narrative that brings us to the present and i think it's becoming more and more like a popular kind of understanding of the history um that we have in this country like like the howard zinnification which is a good thing like more people need to tell this yeah. more complete story and like you were saying like the transatlantic slave trade is one of the worst fucking like it, even also in the history of slavery american slavery was one of the most brutal by far if compared to like ancient greek slavery or all these other you know people are like oh there's always been slaves like we our country was built upon some of the like the most like heinous you know things in human history and we and haven't even mentioned like native americans native american like, john rushmore yes. which is like on lakota land so like that's a complicating factor there but yes yeah you were in the middle of a point sorry no no yeah that's all i was gonna say is like we have a really fucked up history to deal with and um you know in uh it's it hasn't played out like in germany where like a regime is completely overthrown no not completely but you know what i mean yeah um except for the ones who go to like argentina or become like judges but like, you know, we're still in continuity with uh, a regime of slaveholders and slave owners, right? You know, that's George Washington, first president. You know, that's where we start counting the presidents from. We don't start from Lincoln. And then like, how far do we, um, how, you know, how far do we go in tracing the racism? You know, it obviously, because it doesn't end with slavery, you know, anyway, it promotes discussions of history and, and hopefully more total pictures of the legacy of this country that have not yet happened. And whether there's like a revolution in our political system or not, um, you know, obviously, the, it's, it's, as we said at the beginning, kind of like long overdue discussions. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I just wanted to say, like, that's why I think the 1619 Project was a great thing, even if it's like, yeah. you know, even if it's. Uh, contentious history and you can there's a lot of valid critiques you can make that you know the writers should maybe respond to in a more collegial way nonetheless i do think that like bringing that idea like there doesn't have to be a single narrative there can be like a multi-stream narrative 
Well, of, and I think that's what some, what, sorry. Yeah. What people are a- anxious about. I think there's like, there's like pieces of shit who are like anxious about, oh no, don't like take down the statue of like Robert E. Lee. But I think like the anxieties of people who are like down to take down statues, but like maybe worried about like a waterfall, isn't that they're going to cry if someone takes down a Jefferson statue, but that it's that like, do we preserve, like the whole point of this should be preserving the ability to um, absorb our history in, in its complexity and in its multi-layered way and not just tell one story, you know? Yeah. And, and that requires That's being the battle serious. Line, I feel like. Yeah. And, and, and that requires being serious about like what our history is and like the fact that there's multiple different perspectives on that history hmm. and different viewpoints. And also like it requires taking seriously what the relationship is between like images, symbols, texts, mm. meaning, power, all this kind of stuff you were talking about. Damn, dude, I'm, now I'm thinking about being at the Lincoln Memorial and, like, this, his statue is very powerful, but, like, whenever I was at the Lincoln Memorial reading the text of the second inaugural address was always the most important thing. So I guess, you know, that's how you know I'm Jewish. You read the words, you didn't look at the image. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the next part that you'll listen to will dive deeper into some other aspects of these debates. Enjoy it, reflect, and we will let you listen to the second half. Now we want to circle back and kind of add some context to that. Yeah, I think that the, the the conversation has kind of broadened and deepened. There aren't groups of big protesters pulling down statues, but a, a kind of reckoning with monuments and our history is certainly underway. Like two data points is uh, are that you know on the one hand this there was a Washington D.C. City Commission, which put out these recommendations on, you know, changing all these monuments, contextualizing all these monuments, including like the Washington Monument, um, kind of like for the entire, you know, the entire square, however many square miles that city is like covering every single person. uh, We should change these, tear them down or contextualize them. And Trump exploited that because they named over like 300 different like parks and buildings and schools. Some of them they were saying change the names, primarily schools. Uh, the like the federal monuments they were saying to add plaques that contextualize them. But because that was all in one big report, it sounded like they were saying they're going to change the name or tear down, you know, the Washington Monument. And so that became a big talking point for Trump as far as like the his whole discourse of like the radical left hates us and is going to like you know they're the arsonists yeah you know and if you remember like when when we recorded originally trump had just given this speech at mount rushmore about how you know these people these protesters want to destroy our history and then recently he's announced an initiative using billions of dollars to uh, promote the promote patriotic education about of american history so kind of a counterpoint or a counter strategy to the 1619 project, which is trying to teach um, and trying to promote uh, education in public schools of of uh, history, which kind of centers 
marginalized uh, marginalized groups experiences the legacy of slavery you know racism and slavery in american history and trump and the right want to counteract that with their own kind of programs um which promote a vision of our history which focuses very much on how great it always was and how freedom is nice and, and all that good stuff um so the reckoning continues. over our history continues, and that includes uh, a reckoning about monuments and how we commemorate our history in public spaces. And I think that Ethan has a little narrative that he can share with us, which um, does a lot to explain the intellectual genesis um, from the academy that has disseminated outwards and is really shaping the public Discourse. Discourse is a big word that we're going to talk about. The public discourse around monuments, statues, and structural racism. Uh, Yeah, thanks, Max. That's a great lead in. And you start with a statue and a thing that will be said, like um, this was said about the Theodore Roosevelt statue in front of the Museum of Natural History. It's an emblem of white supremacy, or, you know, that these are uh, representatives of, or, you know, uh, materialization of, of white supremacy. And so I won't, I'm trying to unpack uh, all those terms for everybody. The idea there, right, is that white supremacy, again, uh, isn't just, you know, neo-Nazis or something, but that it is, um, maybe you could even say, instead of white supremacy, I could say that these statues are uh, emblematic of systemic racism, structural racism. And so I want to get to how this word structure, it's something that seems to exist within a specific object, but it also sort of transcends that object. It transcends all of society. We're all inside of structural racism. Um, so where did that come from? And like, why do I as like a literary scholar have any knowledge about that? So I was going to kind of give some of the, the background on structuralism. And Max, you can kind of like, Check in. I'll jump in. Yeah. So like what we talk about in the main part is like more about how, how people discuss what harm the statues do and what it means, like what the statues are doing and what it means to tear down the statues. But this is more of like how this idea of structural racism has come to the fore in conversations about these kinds of topics. Exactly. Yeah. I even drew a little diagram, Max, where it, my diagram goes like discourse, structure, statue, and then a dotted arrow that says like harm, violence. Mm-hmm. So that's great audio content, right there. Yeah. <laughs> no. Okay. So structuralism, just starting off, was a movement that began in linguistics, actually. And there was a Swiss linguist named Ferdinand de Saussure. And, and you're gonna be like, wait, how are we gonna go from linguistics to structural racism? I thought structural racism is like the prison industrial complex and like police brutality, but it connects. Come, come along on this journey. Um, mm-hmm. Sassur proposed a, a totally radical idea. This is beginning of the 20th century. The, the relationship between words and the objects that they represent, there's no innate relationship. So I'm sitting in a chair. In English, I say chair. You know, in Hebrew, I could say kise. It doesn't matter. There's nothing about the word chair or kise. Max, give me another, a more accessible language. Spanish. It's- German. Uh, that's German. There's like a bunch of different words for different kinds of chairs. In <laughs> yeah, of course. In any case, Stool. none of those words have anything <laughs> magical about them. 
that relates to the actual thing that a chair is. Uh, the only reason they work to, to name that thing um, is because they are what he called them signifiers. The chair, the thing that they're referring to, is a signified. And th that whole relationship um, is, is how language is created. So the, the word chair only has its meaning because of all the other words in the, lang in the language and that the differences between all those words kind of distinguish each, each component word to, you know, chair will mean chair and table will mean table. And so what matters isn't the individual word, the concrete example. What matters is the abstract system uh, in which the, the, the word acquires meaning. And importantly, and I would say if, if I could cut in please, here, yeah. like that sounds, I think that for, for like modern listeners, that's, that makes a lot of like, sense yeah. because we have this neurological understanding of, of language where we understand that there's like a neuron that, that processes a sound or a word. And then we have another neuron that, that processes the concept of the thing. And then it's the con like the connection between the two thing, two things, which, which allows for language. But before this, that wasn't the idea. There was the idea that there's some sort of essential connection especially between like, you know, like primitive languages and like it's all been developed on, on this building block of like original, original language. Like there was this essential connection between the, the signifier and the signified, but continue. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, the, 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 the original like theory of language, and this is still like, you know, believed in certain traditional religious communities, like in Islam with Arabic and Hebrew and Judaism with Hebrew is that the language came from God. And, and God you know, knows about some essential connection. And that was replaced by philology, which would sort of trace like this culture has these like innate cultural reasons why they make this sound when they want to tell you that they're in a chair. Uh, and, and Saussure like demolished all of that. He's like, no, it's every language is doing the same thing and it's all about the structure. The, a big leap forward came with shortly thereafter, when a French anthropologist named Claude Lévi-Strauss took Saussure's ideas and he applied them while he was doing field work in the Amazon in Brazil. He applied them to native culture, to culture in general, I should say. And while Saussure had said, you know, maybe, you know, the word is the concrete thing and the underlying structure is, is, is what holds it together and gives it meaning, what Lévi-Strauss said is that the rituals of a culture, you know, maybe circumcision or a gender party reveal, whatever it may be, uh -huh. yeah. the, the rituals, those are like the words. They're the means of communicating. But it is the interplay between all of the rituals that create the system of the culture um, or the structures of the relationship. So the reason that you have, um, you know, circumcisions and baby namings and baby showers and haircuts and all those fucking things is because there's a larger kinship system. You know, so if you want to know the meaning of the society, it's not so much about focusing on, like, what does this ritual mean, but looking at the larger, how all of the behaviors or um, traditions, rituals, even also myths and stories and narratives, how all of those interplay to, to create a structure of relationship and and correct me if i'm wrong um but 
don't like binaries play a big Huge. role in both linguistic and anthropological structuralism? Yeah. So the, um, I, I wasn't going to get too into that, but yeah, that's a that's a major point. Is that um, the way that the rules work? Uh, it can be seen in through binary opposition. So what the rule, what the whole structure is ultimately going to always be doing is telling you things like this person is clean, this person is unclean. Um, right. You know, taboo, not taboo, taboo. Yes, no. Yeah. Yes, no. Taboo, not taboo. Um, you know, Sassur would say with language, uh, you know, I could point to a banana or a pair of scissors or an airplane and say chair. Everyone who speaks English will think I'm crazy. Or if I was a baby, they'd tell me no. They'd keep telling me no until I pointed to a chair and said chair. So it's the it's it's actually like the negation of of alternatives that. Um, makes a thing acquire meaning. So yeah, so they were all into binary opposition, um, and, and and that's what maintains the structure. And to them, um, like a custom or a ritual or any activity, couldn't mean anything beyond the structure. Kind of makes that everything's kind of yeah. Outside of the structure, you can't create meaning, right? You have to have the structure to have a system of meaning. Exactly. Okay, so up to that point, we kind of get now we're at structure. So something sort of happens, though, after Levi-Strauss, which is that structuralism, and it leads to another movement called post-structuralism, uh, which will kind of come up as we go, they leap out of language study and the study of literature, and even out of the, the study of culture, and they leap into the social sciences. Um, mm-hmm. But the social sciences, of course, have a very different way of looking at reality than than linguistics or, or, or literary criticism or, um, you know... Uh, and as time has gone on, um, I remember Max, you said something like structure. It sounds like more of something that would come from the engineering world, you know? Mm-hmm. I, re- I, th- I And I think when I was like first encountering the word structuralism, I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a really hard word for, in- for English, which is so like, you know, amorphous and everything. Um, but let's say, let's, let's skip a lot of time. And so post-structuralism, now we're in like the, the 70s and 80s. And in the, in the 70s and 80s, you start to get disciplines that are now kind of housed under something called like cultural studies, and they're hybrid disciplines, and they have mixed methods. And so a cultural studies department could be um, like a, a gender studies department, women's studies, it could be African-American studies. And unlike, they're not defined by a disciplinary practice, like anthropologists have a disciplinary p- practice ethnography that's what they do historians do historiography you know we do literary criticism and so we have yeah but on a on a but on a uh, on a theoretical level i would say that like if you take a discipline like history what happens in history is usually that they take on the theoretical um kind of advances that come from literary uh, uh studies and anthropology so kind of like 10 to 15 years after those are in vogue. In no, it's true. Like Foucault is then they, then they still so to... fucking huge. Like historians are always coming to me like like they just got Foucault from Sinai and they're so psyched about it. And it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. I know. Yeah. Um, but that's an important thing. Is I mean, my dissertation has discipline in the title of it. Just to Foucault's famous uh, work yes. being discipline and punish. I, I won't go into Foucault just just yet, just now. But. Um, the reason I'm pointing this out is, be, and there's a lot of controversy in the academy about cultural studies, but it's definitely the type of thing that, like, you know, if you're talking about, like, the young people, quote-unquote, these are majors that are, that are really popular. 
I'm just going to paint in really broad strokes here. I'm already generalizing a lot. I'm going to generalize even more that like as a reader of these, you know, I can often see in, in a lot of like think pieces online and in, in just a lot of like the sort of like rhetoric of like people under 40 or, you know, is a lot of cultural studies stuff. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, part of the reason you have or Jewish studies or African-American studies is because for one thing, a contention that those topics weren't covered adequately by the traditional disciplines. And I'm sure that's, you know, quite fair. But a thing happens in cultural studies that's a little tricky, which is that they're taking certain methods from literary studies. Now think of like how a literary critic looks at language and looks at reality. But then they're also taking concepts from legal studies, like law, um, which has a very different notion of reality and of language. So like, right, which is like a synthesis of the two kind of kind of, you yeah, I mean? there's like Kimberly, yeah. so, like Crenshaw, like the, the woman who invented the term intersectionality, she's a scholar of law. And then there's and then there, you know, there's also some of this stuff coming out of anthropology, um, very different view of language and reality. You know, they may all buy into structuralism or post-structuralism. But when you mix all this together, some stuff kind of falls out, you know, and it, and it has been like decades and decades since these ideas first came online. So a lot of folks who are kind of being educated or trained today, they're not going to read about Saussure or Levi-Strauss or even Foucault necessarily. They're going to read stuff that's been written in like the past 10 or 20 years by people who, mm. are, who are synthesizing all the people I've talked about thus far, but with, I would say with very different languages. And, and, and part of what I'm trying to do here is just like, if this is a giant ratatouille, you know, I'm trying to like pull out all the different in, uh, ingredients, like mm-hmm. some, some yeah, nice yeah stew, got some tomatoes, tomatoes, and like else? in Wayne's World too. Remember there was the the guy who like compulsively sorted M and M's by color or something because Ozzy Osbourne like demanded like mm. a thousand red M and M's one time and he wouldn't. He's like Ozzy wouldn't go on stage. Okay, so that's what that's what I'm kind of doing. Can we go back like yeah. really quick? So just to say like what post post structuralism is like my understanding of structuralism is we talked about the binary and the structure needs to exist. My understanding is that one of the main you could say like a shortcoming of structuralism that post structuralists were trying to address was that structuralism is kind of ahistorical and it doesn't explain for the possibility of change over time. And if you look at who the main post-structuralists are, they, they do kind of tend to talk about change and um, discontinuity rather than... Discontinuity for um, sure, yeah. I was going to end with post-structuralism, just there's just like a kind of progression of... Fair enough. And like there's also like critical... Yeah, but yeah, like definitely we're, we're going to... But post-structuralists kind of talk about how, like if you take Foucault, for example, like, you know, you have this idea that there's a there's a system of meaning and a structure and like Foucault is all about tracing how those things change. Uh, how those structures of meaning can change from from one era to another. For sure, right? For sure, that was going to be my uh, climax. Sorry, I, was, I introduced discontinuity. Yeah, in your, no, no, it's cool. It's like yeah. a no, no, no. That it's all good. <laughs> well, I, I, I want to like because so it sounds like I'm like under my breath, sort of thing. Like, oh, so like the protesters, like when they say structural racism, they don't know what they're talking about. That's not at all what I'm what I'm saying. I want to actually start with where I believe that they're taking the insights of structuralism and applying them correctly. Again, when we're talking about applying these conclusions to a statue, right? So Mm -hmm. a statue, um, it is like like a word, is a sign. And one could argue that it it doesn't have any meaning outside of the, the, the interplay of other signs, you know, 
with which it is in relation. You know, so I, I agree with that, that they all exemplify a structure before we call that name, that structure, call it racism or whatever, that their signs participate, statues participate in a structure of meaning um, called history, a historical or a sociological structure, whatever. From another angle, the structure of our society is white supremacist, which is just to say that white life and property and, and rights are set in opposition to and valued more than black life and black property and black rights and, and also white history over black history, white speech over black speech. I don't just mean like dialects, but I mean like, you know, the right to speak um, and to be taken seriously. Um, and also like visibility, right? There's a big thing about being seen and being heard, as you're saying, but also like there's an ocular element to it as well. Yeah, right? yeah. And so this could be a moment. I'm, I'm going to pop in a less famous person, this article by a woman named Andrea Brigenti. And she's sort of like, she wrote this article called Visibility, a Category for the Social Sciences. So trying to figure out, you know, again, how there are the social sciences with all of their toolkit dealing with some ideas that came from, like, the humanities. Um, and she was writing that visibility lies at the intersection of two domains, aesthetics, which seems like a human humanities domain, you know? She calls it uh, aesthetics as relations of perception, and politics, which is relations of power. Power, obviously, is something that the social sciences would probably be quite well-equipped to, to investigate. Mm -hmm. Um... But then she had an interesting gloss on all this. You know, indisputably, vision is a sense of power, or better, a sense which confers a sense of power. She talks about visibility in the public space, and it's like the issue of access to visibility. So, uh, you know, in the main recording, I think you talk about how cities, you know, are designed around, you know, you can't but drive around the Jefferson Memorial driving through D.C., right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so... To access these places, is visible places, is the precondition for having a voice in the production of representation. And she's saying it's not precisely, and more precisely, it is not simply access that matters, but rather modes of access. Uh, it is not simply true that if I am disempowered, or if I am a society's outsider, then I am invisible. Rather, what happens is that I access visibility places in ways that are largely or completely out of my control. Right. So you think about like, uh, so think about San Francisco, you have like UN Plaza, which is where the Civic Center is, uh, has monuments and like public buildings of, you know, that have some kind of serious civic meaning. And meanwhile, there is a huge homeless population there, but they're not like there. The way that they're there is not like in any way participating in that. It's kind of this it's a different mode of being there, right? So, like, the fact that they're there is different from the the idea of, like, an organized protest being there. Well, in the, like so what's the protest confer- is trying... Or a press conference happening there for, with the mayor. So a press conference would be, like, it is totally the discretion of, you know, the head of government of a city to hold a press conference on the steps of such and such. What a protest is trying to do is to dispute or contest the, the, ci- yeah, the civic exactly. power of that space, right? Yeah. And, 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 and of course, you know, Trump recognizes this very much. He's declared all these different cities like 
with the Justice Department just declared them like anarchist anarchist municipal jurisdictions anarchist jurisdictions, anarchist jurisdictions. Something, like, um, something like I that. mean that's ama- I mean that really cuts to the, they're reading their brigenti like that cuts to the core of you know, anarchy and power and and everything like that um, so so yeah so for sure you know power power is in play here now now I'm gonna bring in Foucault and discourse okay so where does discourse fit into all this. Um, discourse, you know, in ordinary meaning just means like conversation, right? Or like, or like rational debate maybe or something like that, would you say? Mm -hmm. People use it as a way of capturing like a kind of public conversation about something, I would say. Yeah, yeah. But Foucault's meaning or definition is a little bit more sophisticated than that, not surprisingly. Yeah, it's like, it's specific to like disciplines and stuff i think um, when people say discourse like the term that foucault would probably be actually using as an episteme which is power is exerted in systems of knowledge and social institutions Uh, truth therefore is never absolute but always contingent and express expression of prevailing social and political norms a product of power relations rather than a leveling influence so that's from this really dope book called a world of ideas by this guy chris roman I've quoted from it in our epistemology thing. It's like the most clearest definition of all this kind of shit. I recommend it. Um, Mm -hmm. To bring you back to like this cultural studies idea, I always noticed that like uh, when you are talking to someone who was doing some kind of interdisciplinary research project and you ask them what they were, what the kind of research methodology was, like what they were looking at, they would say like, I'm doing discourse analysis you kind of were like, okay, sounds good. It, it always was this kind of vague thing of like, I'm going to look at a bunch of different stuff. Because discourse is um, everything. It's it's not just language. It's it's institutions. It's laws. It's customs. It's you know. It, it's it's all this kind of um, you know. He's re- like with discourse. He's really expanding um, from like linguistic science to to something that has more to do or or is syn- synthesized with like institutional enactments of power yeah um so it's connected has more of an opening to to history and to events so that's where what you were saying about post-structuralism is for sure true and, and saeed pushes that even further that sort of the um a discourse is kind of const- its interpretation is kind of constrained by the history of its production um but uh and so it would be correct for the protesters to say that a statue is a part of a discourse, right? Um, uh, and it might gain its meaning from a discourse. So if there's a discourse that America was founded by these people who like loved freedom and, and they were just like perfectly awesome freedom revolutionary like fucking heroes who totally were like proponents of equality, that's like one, you know, discourse of American history uh, or something. And mm-hmm. if you see the statues as, as you know, being visible shorthand in, in that discourse, yeah, then that would be reinforcing, you know, like a larger structure of, of white supremacy, you know, in that, for example, it would overlook, let's say, the brutal slave owning practices of Jefferson and Washington, you know, for example. Right. But the question is always like, how? So... We understand that discourse has some relationship with power, right? And that 
anything can be discourse, anything with symbolic meaning can be discourse, like a statue. So the question is still, like, how does the statue reinscribe or reinforce or even enact that power relationship? And so this is right. where, oh, that, that got Willow really worked up. Willow being. Willow, yeah, Willow has things to say about that. But I want to hear what you have yeah, to say about so it. This, uh, hopefully this is like my coup de grace of this, of this part. Okay. So, it, it, so this is where like, not, I, I would say the, 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 mis, the only like kind of critique I have is the idea that the statue can only mean one thing. That its meaning is unitary and singular and... Um, now, like, this doesn't mean that every statue goes. And, and, like, as I said, or will say later, you know, like, I don't give a shit, like, because I'm a Jew, I don't care about statues. I read, uh, Max, in the, in the Zohar or in the Midrash somewhere, they say that... Don't mess with the Zohar. The evil inclination is nothing but eyes, eyeballs, you know? <laughs> Mm. Fuck vision. Yeah, that goes back to yeah to, what I was talking about. Yeah, with the Christian iconoclasm. Yeah. Anyways, but um, but but in this um, particular case, and now getting maybe more to deconstruction, Foucault and Derrida, they kind of split a little bit. But um, I won't situate Jacques Derrida, but I'm just going to say like what he would say about a text. We got to get Basile on here one day to talk yeah, about Derrida. Yeah, really. I mean, uh, then I'll, I'll be like humiliated for like what, however <laughs> like fucked up this is. But um, the, like every text claims to be immediate, to be present, to be like, uh, you know, f- a fulfillment of the intended meaning is like happening immediately, you know, and it's kind of coincident with itself. Um, but what, 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 what Derrida says is, but that's actually not true. Every text has, is structured also by what it omits, by its... Um, conflicts, it has internal contradictions, it has suppressed meanings, it has camouflaged meanings. And um, so y- you can't actually say, uh, in, you know, okay, I mean, that's what he's, he's saying that about language, but he's really saying that about all signs. And so even a statue in that sense um, might contain within it um, multitudes of contradictions. And this is part of what, back up to Foucault, what the post-structuralists were saying that the structuralists missed out on is that structures aren't static and like always like determinant of, of meaning in in like a one-to-one way that they're uh, multifaceted and sometimes contradictory and fragmented and it's from within the structure within the power structure that meanings are renegotiated so Foucault says there's no outside there's no external point of resistance we're all inside it and we're just contesting control over these signs and and maybe um looking for alternative meanings that maybe have been there all along and so this is where i would like i'm going to read like this thomas jefferson quote and again like i think we talk about this in the main part like jefferson was like a really 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 heinous motherfucker like even in the world of heinous fucking slave owners but he also, mm-hmm. but he also wrote this. So this is like where I'm pulling it together with. He's talking. This is in notes on the state of Virginia. He's talking about the slave ownership. Growing up in a slave owning society, he says, "quote gives a loose to the worst of passions, and thus nursed, educated, and daily exercised in tyranny 
a child cannot but be stamped by it with odious peculiarities. And with what execration should the statesman be loaded, who permitting one half of the citizens thus to trample on the rights of the other, transforms those into despots and these into enemies, destroys the morals of the one part uh, and the amor petriae of the other. For if a slave can have a country in this world, it must be any other in preference to that in which he is born to live and labor for another. Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God, that they are not to be violated, but with his wrath. Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever, that considering numbers, nature, and natural means only, a revolution of the wheel of fortune, an exchange of situation is among possible events, that it may become probable by supernatural interference. The Almighty has no attribute which can take side with us in such a contest. So, yes, Jefferson was a slave owner. Yes, Jefferson fathered slaves with a woman who did not have the, you know, certainly legal... We get into you know, this. We, yeah, yeah, we get into we, that. We talk about and he, that. And other than, other than his children, he, he sold all his slaves at his death to, to pay his debts. And, and yet he wrote this and he knew it. Like he absolutely understood it. And he, and he spoke about it elsewhere too. And, and, and his political life was pushing for abolition even as in his personal life he was a slave owner. So there's the, that contradiction in the sign there, that conflict that is already within it, that all I'm saying is, you know, you pull down the statue or don't pull down the statue. But in this maybe can, can be a transition to your thing is, I only see a danger in um, looking at a structure um, or a historical narrative in a one-dimensional way that um, overlooks its internal contradictions and the capacities within the science that we already have for a renegotiation or you know a resistance to a prevailing narrative of white supremacy. Right. So yeah. So Thomas Jefferson contained multitudes, and and I and I wanted to bring up. Uh, another example. So you talk about like the polyvalence, the multiple meanings that a public monument can have. I was thinking it reminded me of the Brandenburg Gate, which I which we talk about, which, you know, it's in Berlin. And it could be thought of as a symbol of like Prussian militarism. And you say Prussian militarism that led to Nazism. Therefore, you know, it's something that Germans should want to get rid of and like expel that from their historical memory. Mm -hmm. But there's other meanings to that monument as well. You know, as we discussed, like it's a it's an architectural it has architectural interest because it's an example of neoclassical architecture. Right. It's a triumphal arch from the neoclassical era. It was also, you know, damaged in World War Two. So it was an example of the kind of defeat of Germany. Um, and they have, you know, in other places, in, in Berlin even, they've maintained the bombed out kind of damaged edifices of monuments as like a kind of Like that really jagged chapel, to, the Phil Kaiser yeah. chapel, that's really dramatic. Right, exactly. Steeple. Uh, it's, it's also a symbol of the Cold War because that it was located in the no man's lands where the Berlin Wall was, yeah, right? So it was wait. right there. I can't remember whether it was located within, I think it was located within the eastern, you know, the, 
the Soviet sector. But Reagan um, said, "Tear down this wall right in front of it," for sure, though. Right, um, and I believe it was still, you know, pockmarked uh, with bombing damage at that point. It mm-hmm. wasn't restored until afterwards. But the point is, like, it means a lot of different things, right? It's not just you can't just take monuments and say hey, can I locate the evidence of like some kind of structural inequality that this monument signifies, right? And say that that is the essence of it. There's a kind of, the, the play between signifier and signified is freer than, than people might say. I think that's what I'm reading your yeah, critique yeah, as, exa- right? Yeah, exa- exactly. Um, and, and, the, uh, and we ignore that at our peril, and, 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 we, and I think that that is, sorry to interrupt you, I want you to go on, but I think that that is one thing that has been not so great about cultural studies is they definitely leave that out a lot and like kind of hew closer to the concrete and the essentialist at, at times. And which to me, if you're, if you're hewing toward essentialism, you're kind of like killing the point of the entire revolutionary endeavor that, that, that this should all be about. And we're way too concrete and, and one-dimensional in our in our reading of images, not just of statues. But keep going, sorry. Yeah, I, and I and I agree with you there, which is that like you know there's two kind of impulses, which is like to restrict meaning and to kind of free meaning. And it seems to me that like the latter is much more emancipatory or has much more emancipatory um, potential than the other, if that makes sense. So I agree with you there. What I would offer to kind of push back on is more my sense of of what people are doing and like i let me see how i want to put this i do agree that what you're saying is true that like there is this oversimplification of meaning that like goes into the the iconoclastic discourse if you could say but i also think and i think you agree with this that the iconoclasts have a more sophisticated understanding of history and how it works than the defenders of statues. Um, And so what I've been thinking about was like to bring back like the, the religious and the secular. So one thing that we hear all the time is that history will be the judge, right? Mm. History will judge us in the future. You know, to me that kind of implies that like in a sense, history is replacing God as this kind of end point in the future that's going to judge, you know, what's moral and what's immoral, right? Wow, yeah. And, you know, you, you could take that to mean, like, academic historians are going to be the judge and, like, academic history is going to decide. I don't think that's true. Um, I don't think that's what people mean. I think that they, what they mean is the kind of public shared historical consciousness yeah is going to decide in the future what was right and what was wrong about any given period. So what I think people are doing... I want to be on the right is, side of history, that kind of thing. I mean, you, you, want to be on the, you want to be on the right side of history, right? And so the kind of sophistication of like accepting that there's this nuance isn't as important as intervening in the process of constructing a shared historical consciousness or sense of memory about about our past and they're kind of saying well what are they saying they're 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 saying like we we are judging the past we are 
you know, subjects who have a better understanding of what's right and wrong than someone like Thomas Jefferson maybe did. But they're also saying we need to get in there, get into the public sphere and and intervene in the the discourse, right? So that later uh later generations will kind of see that the public sphere has been clean. So I'm thinking about like, you know, the churches and the reformation. They they wanted people to see that there had been this intervention to cleanse the churches from idolatry, mm-hmm. right? And I think that show that, the, show the pediment of the statue that isn't there anymore to show that you knocked it down. That was one, one right thing. exactly. I mean, I think that and oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so so I think that to me, I I do agree with you that that iconoclastic discourse does tend to oversimplify the meaning of of public monuments. But at the same time, they they understand how they function in a way that their defenders don't, because their defenders talk about erasing history, and it's and it, there's no erasure happening here. Well, right? yeah. all this stuff that's happening is going to be remembered. Yeah, well, and also, I mean, the erasure thing. Like, I mean, the the version of history that the defenders have is ninety nine percent erasure of every other fucking thing, other than what they want to remember. You know. Right, um, it's right, all right. amnesia, or I mean, it's not amnesia. It's like forced, forced erasure. But what I, I think that it's that there's not such an either or between like the polyvalence of signs and the, the like. We want to be on the right side of history. I think. I mean, all those things. That's why the statues are so interesting. It all converges there because the the visibility issues converge there, um, historical narrative issues um, converge there. But um, and the history thing you say, it's interesting. Do you remember in the, I think it was in the, the big post 9-11 speech when Bush said access of evil and all that stuff. I think that he was like, like whatever, I don't know if it was like Islamic radicalism or like whatever the bad guy was would be on the, what is it, the ash heap of history? That like bin Laden's belief system will end up on the ash heap of history with like fascism and Soviet communism and whatever. Funny that that sounds like something that like Khrushchev would have said about capitalism. That's awesome. Continue. Yeah. Well. Well. I mean. In, I mean. The the more like glass half full is like the Obama thing, or I mean, it's Obama quoting King, quoting someone before King. But like, the history is the arc is long, but it bends toward justice. That that mm-hmm. thing. I I think that there's just I, I just want to insert in in all of that a little bit of doubt. Just first of all that. Um, I don't think history is is this thing that can become the codification of, of of morality. I mean, certainly all of human history until now has not been that. You know, if we're trying to draw our morals from what the fuck happened, the moral of all of human history until now is most of the time people are fucking horrible and kill each other for no good fucking reason. You know? And I don't think like... Right, no, and I agree with you. Sorry, I wanted to say, like, I don't, I don't necessarily think that this idea of history will be the judge is a, is a good way of looking at the world because it's kind of deferring. It's, it has a sense of, like, deferring moral judgment. And also, like, thus far, history has not been a very good, accurate judge of the past. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, like, history is, like, a lot of might make sure. Like, we should fucking treat each other, like, with equity and injustice for a bunch of other reasons. And like, for me, I don't know, God is one of my reasons, but history, I I have a friend I'll quote, I won't drop his name, but like, I remember I was like talking to him about this episode when it was in its like very early stages 
Um, and he was like, yeah, like history, he's like, in a few decades, all of our kids, when they're like, literally skin is burning off because of fucking climate change, they're going to judge us for car- like carbon is going to be the thing, you know? And like, yeah, they might be mad about everything else, but like, you know, if you look, our civilization is in a really precarious state from that. And, um, and, 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 and you know, environmentalists do emphasize that, but like, we don't know is the point. We have no idea what we'll be judged for. Seems like Jefferson actually did have a sense of that. It's interesting. He inserts God in, in it, and he's like, God cannot possibly be on our side. Right. Well, that's what's interesting is that, you know, this idea of, like, there is a tension. Like, so so people talk about, you know, the idea of manifest destiny or, like, the idea of American exceptionalism being this... Uh, kind of aspect of like settler colonialism and and inherently problematic but the guys like Thomas Jefferson up to Abraham Lincoln who really did believe that and that I, that idea that God was like guiding the political history of the of the United States mm-hmm. they understood that God God was in a sense like responsible for the growth of America and its success at the expense of other groups like enslaved Africans or Native Americans, but also they understood that God would be, would like sit in judgment of those exact injustices, right? Yeah, like God wasn't just on our side because like he was like innately, or in Americans or white Americans were like innately like godly and he's just like ride or die i'm with i'm with the americans and that goes right back to like the fucking old testament which is where we started this whole story right it's like there's this idea out there of like well yeah jews are the chosen people so people think that there's this idea of jewish exceptionalism where like we're better than everyone else and like that's not exactly the point right so there is a privilege kind of Right. There's a privilege to it, but there's also like a, it's a, it's a hard bargain. You know what yeah. I mean? And there's punishment uh, in it as well. There's this great midrash about, and it's a little off topic, but God went to all the other nations first and offered them the same deal. And all the other nations were like, no way. You know, I mean, and by the way, if you look, if, if you're in um, 1200 BC looking forward at the rest of Jewish history I would be like, no, <laughs> like, yeah, there's, especially exactly. in the 20th century, there's some shit I really don't want to be around for. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, I think that the statues are, are interesting because they, they condense so much of this. And, and, and they also, you know, they are the 1619 project, a lot of these things. What's great about them is I think it's a lot of like adults are reading books and learning about history. They're learning stuff that like, if you weren't checking in so much when you were an adolescent because you were a fucking adolescent, like, it's really cool that right now there's reading groups and there's people who are maybe acquainting themselves not just with, like, the, the quote-unquote, like, hegemonic discourse of American history, but, but also with the much fuller uh, and more detailed and more full of contradiction. You know, I mean, that's the thing, right, is that I think part of the whole 1619 project, well, it, it depends how you read it. You can read it as... Yeah, America is is very simply, unequivocally racist and white supremacist in every moment and in every instance. Or you can read it as this is a very complex history full of contestation. You know, Frederick Douglass's contestation. You know, like, mm. 
there's a great documentary on on reconstruction that PBS had like a year ago, but it's very topical now to all this. And you know how many um, African American politicians there were in the immediate years after slavery, and what they were trying to say is this is our country, this is our project, the, like these are our founding documents, and we are claiming, uh, we are contesting the meaning that you, the the white majority, have said that they have, you know, um, in in. So the, I don't know. It, it kind of depends how there are both of those tendencies, but I think that there's something uh, productive in in contestation. Because if it's all bad, then we're like kind of. I mean, it is okay. Most of it is bad. I'm not saying it's not all bad. But what I mean by that is like if it is all to be rejected in its entire totality, then we're really starting from scratch. And I think the history of projects that start from scratch isn't very promising. And I don't know, maybe that's not a good place to, to end, but. No, I mean, that makes sense. Like you, to, in order to get that emancipatory impulse, you have to like rely on the systems of meaning that exist. And I think that I, what I wanted to, to the last point I wanted to bring up was this very interesting to me, at least tension in the idea of structural racism of like the idea of something being founded on white supremacy. So on the one hand, and this goes back to like structuralism and post-structuralism. It's like on the one hand, 1619 project, like America is founded on white supremacy, meaning at its foundation in the past, it was, you know, white supremacists and everyone in our past, you know, all the, all our leaders in the past were white supremacists and they were racist. And even Lincoln was a racist. Right. And then on the other hand, like in the present day, the structure that exists now, the foundation of that structure, which is like an ahistorical kind of system, the foundation is white supremacy. Right. I didn't understand so this like there's a, Well, there's like a historical aspect to it. So foundation as a point in time. And then there's an ahistorical element being a, a, the, the foundation of a structure that exists through time. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, it, it never changes because it's the structure is like static and remains what it is in every instance. R- right. Exactly. So the question is, like, can you change that? So like by effacing or somehow symbolically challenging the historical foundation um, of white supremacy, can you, in that same act, challenge the the ahistorical present foundation of white supremacy that exists in this country? And I think that that's, to me, that's kind of like what's going on. Um, yeah. in these acts of iconoclasm. Yeah, all this you could turn down, we, like we're in an intersection, we turn right down to the statues, you could turn left to another question of representation, which is like, um, you know, like the, the new Academy Awards criteria and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, but like through trying to correct or change the representations, you know, do you change the structure? And again, I think that that's where like, uh, you know, and, and maybe I shouldn't like blame um, cultural studies or critical race theory per se, but maybe the way that it's popularized. But they sort of jump out. They're like on the structuralism train and then they just kind of like 
jump like in into some other really emancipatory you know frameworks but just they don't i don't know if they cohere quite because the whole thing in 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 a structure is that the the singular instance in a way kind of doesn't matter you know it's it's the larger structure that matters that's a b when you, you mentioned discipline earlier part of what foucault says is that when he's talking about the power of discourse, you know, in a, in a system of power or a structure, that's not um, overt power. That's not the power of a policeman who, like, kicks down your door and, like, seizes you without, you know, giving you your rights or kills you or whatever. That type of power, that overt power, is uh, pre-modern, you know, and doesn't rely mm. on discourse, it relies on, on, on force. The whole thing of discourse is, he says it's power, I'm giving you a Foucault quote, that operates not by right, but by technique, not by law, but by normalization, not by punishment, but by control. And so normalization, you know what I mean? It's, it- right, but normalization is such a key term right now in, in the discourse, right? I mean, so I think that like people to maybe subconsciously understand that like there's normalization there's the discourse and then there's like the brute power and there's some kind of there's some kind Feedback. of connective tissue there, there is but they're but they're operating in kind of at least if you're buying Foucault in, in distinct modalities hmm. like so people would be like that statue is violent the, the power that we're contesting when we're talking about statues or when we're talking about representations isn't arguably isn't of the same uh, method as as like you know the power of police brutality which which is kind of an overt unchecked power of of the sovereign whereas the other one is a power that exists in a sort of if it's in a system if it's in a structure it's something that we're all enmeshed in and we're all participating in Uh, Foucault says that what makes revolution possible is quote a strategic codification of these points of resistance unquote like making new norms, right? That's like part of what we're trying mm-hmm. to do in this yeah. in this social social change in this movement is to not normalize certain things that were like accepted and default and whatever. We're trying to you know calling them out is is in a way like putting them outside of normalization and putting other things into normalization. I think that's like a struggle worth fighting, and that is a struggle that involves signs and representations. Um, but I don't know if that is 100% determinant on, um, the like exertion of raw power and me, like this is again, where there's, there's a big tension between Foucault and Marxists and the Marxists are like, dude, networks and what the fuck are you talking about? People have money and they don't want other people to have it. And then they come up with all this other shit to oppress them. And to me, like, I'm disappointed in, like, the lack of a Marxist emphasis in, in kind of the, the contemporary conversation about all this, because to me, that's more forceful and convincing and uh, to me of what all this is about, um, especially when you're looking at, like, the police are the tip of the spear and the sp- who's holding the spear is, like, our, our economic system, you know? And some of that is almost, like, feudal and pre-modern now. Fair enough. All right, we're going we're gonna to get going now. Hope to hear from you guys write us at literallyeverythingpod at gmail.com if you have any comments we'd love to hear from you